Abby Ajayi is a British Nigerian writer and director who serves as a showrunner, creator, executive producer, and writer on the Amazon series Riches, which is currently on Amazon Prime and will premiere on ITVX in the UK on December 22nd. Abby has previously worked on shows such as Four Weddings and a Funeral, How to Get Away with Murder, Inventing Anna, and EastEnders, to name a few. As a result, she had the opportunity to learn under the likes of Shonda Rhimes, Pete Norwalk, and Tracy Wakefield. Abby's next project is the Onyx Collective on Hulu's limited series The Plot with Mahershala Ali. Abby Ajayi, welcome to The Creative Process. Thank you for having me, Mia. Lovely to be here. So congratulations on the premiere of Riches. I've seen all episodes. Oh, and so many people will have previously seen your work, you know, exploration of complex characters, negotiating power and loyalties and betrayal in series like How to Get Away with Murder, Inventing Anna, The First Lady. You worked on so many interesting shows. For your first project as showrunner and writer of Riches, why did you decide upon a family business drama set in the black beauty industry? Well, thank you so much for watching, Mia. I think for my first drama, well, the first thing, obviously, in all these careers is like when you're trying to get your first drama you're developing multiple things at the same time so it's not necessarily a conscious this is going to be the first one it's like which one get greenlit first so I had multiple projects in development at the same time and greenlit and Riches was the first one past the post I think it it has all the hallmarks of the things I've worked on before in terms of complex slightly subversive women at the heart of it it is negotiating power dynamics and at the heart of it, there are two very complex and yet vulnerable Black women. But I've always loved family drama shows and particularly family businesses, whether it's fictional ones or in real life. I think whether you're talking about the Hiltons, the Kardashians, the royal family, the dynamics of where power and money and blood merges is just such a potent and combustible mix that I've always been intrigued by them. I watched them growing up, whether it was Dallas or Dynasty or Six Feet Under. So I was in a space in which I was really interested in and wanted to write a black family business show. And myself and my producers had sort of, they knew my interest and we talked around what would a black British business be? And they were interested in cosmetics, which I thought was a really good start because obviously that's incredibly visual. But for me, hair was the piece that kind of tied it all together, hair and cosmetics business, because black hair is often so politicized and it's such a way in which black people are sometimes policed in terms of having dreadlocks, having relaxed hair, whether they wear wigs. So it was a way in which we would have a glamorous visual for a show and an entertaining world that's aspirational, but still have a layer in which we get to tell substantive issues about Black beauty, about Black ownership, about how the spoils from a very lucrative industry often don't go back into the Black community. So that's why I was interested in, in that it could be glamorous and fun, but also have slightly more, more in-depth issues to talk about as well. And it's so timely. You mentioned the political aspect of Black hair. I think these topics, these questions are perennial issues. And I feel like when you're telling a story, the goal is to be as authentic and real as possible. And that might be uncomfortable. But actually, I think if you're going to try and just reflect society in a real way, it's a part of the story. In Riches, it is part of the story. It isn't the kind of core heart of the story. But I felt that it was important to have those elements in amongst the fun, in amongst the joy, in amongst the family drama, because I think our lives are not just one thing. You don't walk around saying, I'm in a drama or I'm in a comedy. You have elements of everything in a day. 
Well, you certainly have all those elements in the show and the key opening speech that Stephen gives. And I didn't realize, you know, setting the scene of what the black hair and beauty industry is. It was five billion pounds a year in the UK. Approximately, yeah. And so that's what our research showed us anyway. But I, I like that you kind of articulate what it was for me, which is a scene setting monologue. And, you know, Hugh brings this kind of Shakespearean energy to things. But I thought it was important to set off scene and tell us what we're talking about and tell us about why this company is such a beacon, because historically there have been this fetter on black ambition and black success and the obstacles they've had to overcome to get here. So I think it's the scene for the show very, very well, but also making it very contemporary and very much topics in the zeitgeist right now. Yeah, you certainly set the stakes. And as you say, business is difficult with friends and then put a family into it. And then you set the ball rolling very quickly in terms of an inheritance and bringing together families who had been divided and brought together. So the American and the British contingent just set that up a little bit. And you mentioned the many strong female characters in this, Nina and her stepmother, Claudia, and that dynamic. Yeah. Yeah, it was important to set the stakes quite quickly because uh, as an audience member, my attention span can be a little bit short as well. So I think I wanted to get the audience hooked as quickly as possible. But certainly going back to sort of the importance for me of, you know, the sort of family inheritance story, the sort of battle for control, it, it's such a human story. There's so many stories in that vein you know, going back all the way to King Lear and the kind of the struggle for power. So I knew I wasn't really inventing the world in terms of the genre space, but in putting a black family at the heart of it, which I had seen in a British context before, my goal, I think, was to make sure that I was a specific to what feels true and authentic for a British and a Londoner. And so what was important for me was that the diaspora be reflected. You know, when you have first and second generation immigrants, whereby our roots are in Nigeria, but one sibling goes to America, one sibling goes to London. And you have the sort of spread, specifically in this case, the Nigerian diaspora spreads across the continent. So it felt very real to me. It's very true to my experience and that of a lot of my friends and peers. But similarly, as TV becomes much more global and we're enjoying things, we're all watching Squid Game, you know, we're all watching Call My Agent. It felt also incredibly like, narratively and in character terms very true, but also strategically good because, you know, we all have American cousins, you all have, you know, blended families. And so bringing them in also, again, I think also helped in terms of broadening that audience even more. So it felt grounded and also like a good move for the show to bring the Americans to London. And then, of course, it's a story about betrayals. Also, you're able to turn our allegiances, you know, mm-hmm. where you feel that one is an enemy, but we begin to understand them and we soften towards them and we understand some of the decisions they've made and perhaps their perspective. Absolutely. I think these stories, I think the, the great thing about family dramas is you get to see myriad characters with different dynamics and they're really relatable because we all have our sort of family dynamics and the issues we face in real life. But yes, in terms of dramatically, it was important to show the different relationships and how they changed, how their different agendas operated. And and also that enjoyment of when you suddenly see someone else's perspective, when you suddenly see why Alicia feels othered, when you suddenly see why Wanda is, is the way she is, and also how much her grief is sort of driving her actions as well. So I feel like from a dramatic point of view, I think it's never that exciting when a story stays on the same track for too long. So I did want us to have those dynamic shifts and alliances. And that felt also right in a kind of battle for succession, battle for power within the family. And then you have those of obviously there have been born into wealth and those who've really had to fight for it. So that what has maybe seems to have come easy. And of course, mm-hmm. it's not easy for anyone. So you bring across the complexity and the beats that keep us going, wanting to know how it will be resolved. What did you learn coming up? As we mentioned, some of the earlier shows that you've written and executive produced on. Of course, you're known for your collaborations with Shonda Rhimes. What did you learn from that process? And how did you find your voice within that? 
Absolutely. So it was great. I'd worked in the UK for a while and there were just so many more opportunities coming to the States. I think the great thing about Shondaland and the American process in general, but Shondaland continues, this is, is that way in which writers are writer producers. And so there's a real emphasis, not just on doing the writing, which is the same job you do in the UK, but actually doing all the prep. So you're in pre-production, you go to stunt meetings, you go to costume meetings, you go to you know, props meetings. You're very across how is the thing you wrote going to be realized and working with those teams. And then you go into production as well. You work collaboratively with the director and are the voice there of the showrunner. So I think the key thing for me was that working at Shondaland helped me become a real writer-producer. I produced my episode Murder. I produced multiple episodes on Inventing Anna. And I think that was crucial for me in being able to kind of run and be the creative sort of driver on riches in that I'd had first-hand experience of like, this is the thing we wrote. Now this is how we realize it. Because the script is really very much a blueprint. And it was really, I'd learned how to be across the things that are hugely important and those decisions, you know, were, and how to talk to your HODs to ensure that the thing you wrote is how they realize it, even if it's not the exact thing, but how to make sure that the vision and the intention of the script is realized. So I learned to be a producer there. And certainly as a writer and a woman in this business, I learned one, because, you know, what Shonda has achieved is a beacon for lots of people coming up. So at a point where I was like, give up and go become a lawyer because it's not happening. You're like, well, you know, maybe I could learn to figure out how she did it. But also, more importantly, just that importance of like a certain one's vision and being very clear that I want to create an original show and take up that space to do that, irrespective of any obstacles. Yes. And as you should say, also, you've directed episode four. You wrote all the episodes, although I believe also because you're a strong believer in mentorship, you've also given a first opportunity to a co-writer and one of the episodes. Just tell us a little bit more about that process. Yes. Thanks for bringing that up. I did. I directed episode four, which is my first time directing, really. And I co-wrote episode four with Timmy Bellow, who's an emerging writer who's very talented. But yeah, I felt one in learning to produce episodes when I worked in America, worked in Chandelier it made me really fully understand what the director does in a very real way and made me realize that I do want to do that as well. So the, I learned from some great directors working in Chandelang, whether it was Jet Wilkinson or Paris Barkley or anything as Stewart. There were just so many great directors. I saw how they worked and how they ran a set and how they blocked and, and stuff. So I learned from that. But I do think the opportunities to give, particularly in the, this was a show made in the UK, to give writers their first credit was, I felt a real sense of responsibility because when I was coming up, there were so few opportunities to write on someone else's show and get those opportunities. So this is before streamers open things up a bit more in the UK. And so it was important for me to help someone get that all important first credit in the stop that career move in. And directing was, again was brilliant. I directed episode four and it was, it's a really incredible feeling for the thing you wrote and then seeing your head to then be instrumental in actually setting that vision, you know, and putting that on screen. And I had an incredible team with my DP, Dan, and my first cads, and that whole team really just sort of supported helping me achieve that. And so at the core of this story and other projects that you've worked on as well is that strong women, how do they maintain and hold and get power? And how do you give ownership to a creative vision for your team? I guess that that would also apply to show running. So you're analyzing things. What makes a good leader? As you analyze those things, what do you feel are key ingredients? That's a great question. I feel like in a way, learning to be a producer and to show run and, and the character Nina is learning to do those things as a CEO as well. Well, first thing, I think it was that, that understanding that these things are incredibly collaborative. You know, you can be more with some of your parts with the people if you have their trust and you listen to them. But I also think it's important to remember that the buck stops somewhere and there has to be a decision maker. 
So it's that thing about trying to be a better listener and listening to the people around you and empowering the people around you to do their jobs well, but also have been able to have those sticky, difficult conversations. So in terms of going into the UK as a first-time showrunner, there are moments where, and also, of course, the UK and the US are still quite different, really. The showrunner model is very much the American system, while the UK historically has a much more lead writer who then hands over the script to a producer, who then hands them over to the director. But I was clear that I do feel that if one has the desire to and the ability to be a much more big picture showrunner, I think that to the best, that benefits the show because there's a creative voice running all the way through. This isn't a movie where it's a director's medium. It is the writer's medium. So I think the writer should be across producing and also empowering the director, but there is a clear vision. But in terms of leadership, it wasn't very much about ultimately starting to say, okay, this is what it is and be confident in that. And also acknowledging when one makes mistakes, you know, because you're making a lot of decisions in a very short period of time. And, but I think it's important to give credit where it's due as well. And that was also true of being a director. It's important to give credit. So have a vision, work with those people to have the vision, listen to what they're saying, listen to their ideas. And I think making television just, it makes it crucial to have a vision, but be able to pivot. You know, if you're not making your days, what can we cut? And that's a much easier place to be when you're the creator writer, because you know what's important for the next episode. So you get the things that are crucial and keep moving. And I think leadership, particularly for women, can be a very dicey proposition because there are a lot of unconscious bias that we have to unpack. And sometimes that's internalized as well. Sometimes it's when you go before other people. But I think the confidence to know that one has earned one's place there. And, you know, it was important for me to remember, I do not have to be perfect because there is a perfectionism thing. You can and will make mistakes. And that shouldn't mean that you never get another opportunity or that you're punished for it. And if your collaborators aren't human and empathetic enough to know that we all make mistakes sometimes, that's a problem with the collaborators as well. And I mean, leadership is also about picking the right people, you know, and sometimes if you pick the wrong people, moving on from that decision as quickly as possible to rectify it. And what were some of those creative conversations, both with the performers, but also artistic directors or costume and the setting, creating this whole believable world? What were some of those discussions? I think going into a show like this, which was we were aiming for something that's not with a Black British family, but a really glossy, high-end visual feel to it, quite ambitious in scope. It was important to have a lot of conversations on it about how we would achieve that. But also then also some slightly more if not a difficult conversation, the conversations that have the potential to be uncomfortable. So I was really clear, we're going to have a predominantly black cast. How do we ensure that they're properly lit? Because that's an issue. How do we ensure that the right hair and makeup teams are in there, you know, find the right people to empower actors to go and do their best work? And so I think the starting point is always you just start with a conversation, even at interview stage, for instance. When we were meeting DPs, it was clear that we would have to talk to them about experience and lighting black skin and lighting it very well. And our DP, Ollie, was great because his deck came and it was clear he'd been mindful in the selection of images and was someone that we could trust to really engage and have the conversations with us. Similarly, it was, again, this is part of the leadership and having the vision. I was really clear about certain things. The clothes need to feel high-end. We might not have the most high-end budget, but how do we cheat it? When will we hire the expensive bags, you know, and when will we pull back? So it was always kind of, I think the starting point is for anyone doing a job, you want clear instructions and a clear sense of what your mandate is and the best way to do that is to communicate and I thought it was important to communicate up front at the start and then when things weren't going well have those difficult conversations as well and try and make sure we put the train back on the tracks and I wonder from your legal training one always imagines I don't know did you go into law because it was your first love or because you just had an affinity language and you could steer it there and then said I really want to do this I went into law because I'm a first generation British Nigerian and very much the immigrant 
sensibility of lawyer, doctor, engineer. Those are the key things. But I also, I loved legal shows. I watched so many legal shows. I was, you know, LA Law, Murder One, Ali McBeal. And so I thought, oh, this could be fun. And so I went into it from that perspective. But obviously I was interested in language and, and I was a confident public speaker. Uh, so I thought, okay, this would be great. Very quickly, the first few months at, at Oxford, and I was like, oh God, the English legal system is nothing like, you know, any law. You know, there are no frothy suits and sunshine and convertible cars. But I think the benefits of a law degree for me, actually, like when you were reading the case law where you'd read the judgments, fundamentally the law is about how human beings organize themselves and organize disputes and organize how to get to a place of accommodation or compromise, which is the same as drama, conflict, compromise. So I think in terms of writing characters, I learned so much from that process of like reading these judgments. I'm like, why did they do that? It was always clear to me that sometimes the judgments would end and I'd be like, that's the decision. And like, that's why you should be in fiction so you can write the endings you want as opposed to play that. So I think the legal background, like a lot of people who have legal backgrounds in, in film and television, there is a rigor to it that I think is important. It does give you, it helps you think about character in terms of fiction writing that's how do you think about character and motivation and why people do the things they do and what are the consequences on a bigger societal level and in terms of like as a showrunner I think it, it did give me a sense uh, I guess a kind of clarity in terms of this is what you want to do yeah planning you know like you plan a strategy what's the strategy of your case what's your strategy of the show what do you want to achieve with this I think it kind of helps with the kind of clarity of thought and expression yeah, you can debrief. And I can imagine when you analyze at the end of the day and you have all your shots and you collected that planning yeah. mind, which is so important. I think that others outside of the arts think that it's something that happens by magic, but I'm not sure. No, the planning is integral. I am a very, too much of a planner because there is a sense that I want to kind of control every element of the narrative and every element of the production. And but the great thing with this production is quite humbling because I think it's important to go in as prepared as possible. So as a director, I had, well, as a writer, I know I do a story area. I do a really detailed outline, kind of up to like 20 pages. And then I write. By the time I write, almost every decision has been made. That you, you discover things in the writing, but the outline is so detailed and specific. Why did I do this? Why are they thinking this? So I am a planner. Certainly as a director, I was very much with my DP on a shot list every scene. Because I think when you go in with a really detailed, rigorous plan, you're more able to pivot and respond to oh my God, we like arrive at the location and over Christmas, they've completely redecorated and repainted it and it doesn't work. What do we do? But actually, I knew what we were going to do, but I knew the scene so well that I was able to pivot in the moment. So I think the planning is crucial, but production is humbling, directing is humbling. And it's one of those situations where I struggle to be with being mindful. And everyone's talking about being in the moment, being in the moment. When you're directing, there is absolutely nothing else to do but be in the moment. You're looking at the screen, you're looking at your actors. You have to figure out how to get it because tomorrow night won't be the time in two hours when you wrap. But I think it was, but I think planning, being a, having a bedrock of planning is how you're able to then trust the moment and trust the magic and trust the performers to do what you need them to and what the script demands. And your other forthcoming project is The Plot. So you've written for and directed some of the best actors, Viola Davis, Marshala Ali. Tell us about some of those experiences and writing for their rhythms and their abilities. So The Plot is some super early development, so not really much to say on that. But I think you hit on something quite interesting with, you know, I joined How to Get Away with Murder in the third season. And so I'd already watched a season of Viola and I knew her as a performer. I knew her, admired her work greatly. So you go in knowing their voices and their mannerisms and the things you know they do well and things you're excited to write for them. 
with Richards, I knew some of the actors' work because some of them were still relatively new. So you write in different ways in terms of sometimes you know the performer really well and you're just sort of like, oh, I know I want them for this role because they'd be amazing and I know what I'm writing to. But other times you are writing completely blind. I've got a feature that I've written and I hope to direct where we're going out to talent right now. But I had someone in mind, but that might not work out. So you sort of just have to adapt. But then the thing about once you have actors on board is, and then you have table reads, you see how they're performing things. You see where they put the inflection. And I think that's, again, hitting how collaborative a medium this is because your script is a blueprint and you've done that. But then an actor comes on board and then you start to see how they play the role and what the work they've done to really make this character grow on the page. And so in, in Richard's, Emmanuel turned out to be a fluent Eurobus speaker. So I started to incorporate that because that was something he had that I think the character would have as well. And the work he'd done he, in terms of his process brought us to that point. So I feel like the thing about working with, you know, the best actors or emerging actors is just ultimately really trusting that they have a process as well that will enrich the character you've created. And that's sort of what I go in with really is hoping that the work I've done should be rigorous and developed and in-depth, but actually it's enriched when you see what they bring to the character and then you just suddenly like, oh, it opens a whole new door and a whole new set of stories as well. I think from listening to what some of the actors from Richards shared, Emmanuel had shared that uh, the character Simon, that it felt that uh, maybe you had been going around observing. There were just little secret things that somehow found their way into the character. Yeah, I think right to the magpies, we kind of steal, you know, the flashy thing from the less flashy things. But you just want it to do your best work and make things deeper and more real and more authentic. And just instinctively, you start to lean into, oh, she did that so well. I want more of that. Or the way she looked in her eyes at that moment. So I would watch it. I'd be watching the dailies while I'd be writing the subsequent scripts coming up. And you're just like, oh, wow, there's this chemistry between these two. I really want to see them in another scene. So you create those moments. But I think for me, certainly getting to do as much production as I have in the last few years has really hit home how much you can really also lean on the process of the actor so that they are your true collaborators. They have as much ownership of the character as you do. And at certain points, they embody them possibly on a deeper level than you ever did because they're playing them day in, day out, you know. So I had to trust in them. With Deborah, it was really kind of finding those moments of vulnerability, Nina, and the moments where we would say, oh, her grief about her father kicks in. Ada Yinka, who plays Alicia, we had this really interesting conversation about whether what and whether Alicia drinks because they had this big scene in episode three it was like, she was like, she drinks, but she doesn't get drunk, but she won't have a glass in her hand the whole time because she's not that, she's, so that kind of level of detail in which they've come brought to their characters, I think also just helped strengthen the writing and I'd go back and polish. Um, and even at table reads, really listening and watching their inflections and their colloquialisms so that it felt as real as possible by the time the cameras were rolling. And what did growing up in a family of four teach? I hope there are not so many overlaps in this story in terms of the dynamics. But what did it teach you about drama? <laughs> oh, what did it teach me about drama? They're not like the characters, particularly in the show. I'll say that. But no, I think there's actually quite a big age gap amongst me and my siblings. We span, the four of us span like 16 years. And I think what it taught me most is about relationships, which is the meat of drama. In terms of like, you, you're, you're a unit in terms of the four of you. But you also all have different relationships with our parents. You also have different relationships with each other. So it's just that thing about the dynamics, about how group dynamics amongst when you have multiple siblings is always interesting because you really learn about the different relationships, about the different ways in which parents, you know, treat, value and love their kids, which isn't to say that the love is unequal, but it's different. It's a different relationship. I think 
particularly writing a large ensemble like the Richards in Riches, it was important for me to show that just because you're all siblings doesn't mean you all feel the same way about certain things. And even just because you're all black doesn't mean you feel the same way about certain things. You know, that debate about colorism kind of reveals that you have different worldviews. So I think having lots of siblings taught me a lot about relationship dynamics, group dynamics, the importance of support and how the way, but also how the ways in which we are kind of all rooted in our family. The first hurt to lodge there, but also the kind of the bedrock of confidence and how one moves in the world and self-esteem is tied up with siblings, I think. It teaches so much about cooperation as well. You know, so many single child families now, I, I don't know if they get th- that whole thing. You have to forge your character alone. It's so nice to see that. I'm sure it can have its complications too. You're very good at writing ensembles. Of course, I'm thinking about how to get away with murder. And I'm wondering what the beat sheet must have looked like for that. Again, the twisting alliances, always turning the expectations and what we want and believe about the characters. Yeah, I think credit to that, to Pink Noel, who created murder and really set this tone. And all that, you know, I think the great thing about working on the show of that size and scale on the network is there were so many great writers on staff. So in my first year, there were writers who'd been on True Blood, there were writers who'd been on Revenge, there were writers who'd been on so many other shows. So you were learning that thing of being a magpie, stealing the best of people's processes from multiple shows, which just helps you grow as a writer. But I think the way Pete approached Thriller was just like, you can't write towards it or it becomes too obvious. So have the subversions, have the plot twists, really set out to bamboozle the audience and then they think X is one thing and then you can flip it. So I think what I learned from that was the ways in which you have to be really hooky, hook them in and also actively try to subvert their expectations and mislead them and send them down those blind alleyways. And that, and I, I think prior to that, you sort of, I'd sort of been more organic about it, but actually, I think actually when you kind of come up with a much more structured thought of, oh, I want them to think X when it, it's Y, it just, you just, you structure things a bit more differently. And that was certainly something I borrowed from in terms of my process with riches, because I, I, it was kind of like, how do you keep them engaged? How do you keep them, you know, keep putting the rug out, rug out from under their feet so that by the end, they've had, they have suspicions because they can't all come from nowhere. But it's whether your suspicions add up to the thing you think they're going to add up to. Yes. And the difference is when you're writing about people who are still alive or people who have a certain amount of fame, like in The First Lady or Inventing Anna, how do you balance that? Of course, it's rich in drama, but then there's a little bit of fidelity to the truth, of course. Yeah, no, I think, you know, one always has a responsibility to about how you depict people who still exist. I think different writers have different lines on that front. I would, I tend to feel more, more, much more. I think there has to be some element of fictional license. You know, how do you help dramatize this so that it feels like a, an entertainment, something to keep an audience in mind, so to keep the audience engaged. But I would hate to ever be in a position where I'd completely subverted someone's real position in real life to so dramatic license. So if they said, it's green, I don't want it to be, it's red, you know, in my show. I think there is something about being in the ballpark of what they stood for. And with Inventing Anna, you know, there was a lot of, the material to read or the material to sift through. Sometimes in that case, you're sort of like, wow, real life really is rhythm fiction sometimes. But I think it was a testament to Shonda's vision for the show that we kind of didn't ever try and squeeze it into one thing, but actually took this sort of big picture view about look at the different elements of what how this con was operating. So the episodes work in that way in which like you go into her friends, you go into the banking world, you go into the other friends in Marrakesh. So I, I think that way was interesting because you don't ever, she's sort of like trying to catch your life in the bottle. You know, I think fiction sometimes wants to shape people so you understand all their psychology, but you can't ever really understand people's psychology. So there's something interesting about her 
still remaining an enigma right through to the end. With First Lady, I was only on, on that for a short time, but I just went back to sources, like picked up biographies, read people's perspectives and their POV, and then read counter perspectives so that you're sort of trying to find it's not the truth, truth, because I'm not sure they're never really an empirical one, but kind of the emotional truth of what, say, Hillary was feeling when she was going to ask the child for help and all that kind of stuff. So I think just it, finding an emotional truth, I think, is important, particularly with real people. Oh, and you say such an important insight that there perhaps never is one empirical truth. Yeah, I think that that feels true to me. I think, and I think that, I guess, going back to your question about when you're writing big ensembles or having grown up with multiple siblings, which I perspective is everything and you know we all have different perspectives you're always standing in a slightly different place with your own agenda your own desires your own wants your own way of seeing the world so there is never going to be one truth about one event you know it, we all we see the world as we are and with all the baggage that it hails so I, I feel like writing something in a quest for like a definitive truth can sometimes be quite reductive but writing complex characters who have valid reasons for feeling the way they are, even if they make us uncomfortable, feels like interesting and fertile dramatic ground. Yes. And in Inventing Anna, it posed a lot of interesting questions. You know, people wanted to believe in the lie. And it's interesting how in some sense you have become a collaborator with Anna Delvey. I haven't been following afterwards, but I think that it's continued the drama. The story continued, it seems. Distant yeah. collaborators. Yeah, no, I've been sent a couple of articles. And it's fascinating because, as you say, the story continues, which I think is, is why it's good to not try to, like, definitively define her. You know, there is no case closed. People are enigmas, you know, even the most... And I think the best dramas are the ones that show you that even people who seem the most open and, like, the most... This is me. We all have our internal dramas. Our inter- I love watching where the richness of someone's internal life is revealed slowly and you're sort of like, God, you know, there was so much going on. The storm beneath the surface that you had no idea was there. It's interesting. And I know that you said that in the plot it's in production, but there seems to be a through line. What drew you to that subject matter? I think this goes back to sort of my legal background a little bit, really, in terms of I'm always drawn to, so I'm adapting another book, which is, Awesome thriller. I'm a, I'm interested in thrillers. I'm interested in I'm interested in just ways in the which we characters who present present one facade to the world, and then we start to unravel that to see what else is happening. Really, you know, there's a phrase that comes to mind: the silence of the sea, and actually, you're like all just roiling underneath. Really, but it doesn't matter the background. I always loved thrillers. So whether Jean's book, or I'm also doing an adaptation of The Bedroom Window, which is a 1987 film. And again, that's a story about, you know, someone they shouldn't be at the wrong time and has to make a kind of decision as to whether to do the right thing or to keep their secret. I'm really interested in the moral complexities about our actions, basically. Looking at Abby Ajayi's work and her pathway to the role of Shurinov Riches is really beautiful and makes me enthusiastic about my own creative journey. As a writer, Abby has gone on the journey from love-based shows, tapping into our legal background, to soap operas about everyday British lives, from cons and complicated profile stories. Her journey through film and television is exciting. As a filmmaker myself with very similar backgrounds to Abby, looking at Abby makes me excited about the future. 
Film for me is a mirror of reality and the journey is always different with each work and each project. Abby has made it known the research and work that goes on behind every project. Every project has a piece of Abby and that is something I want my projects to have. Every project having a piece of my creativity, my enthusiasm and myself. She is such a very great creative role model to look up to. You work for Martin shows like EastEnders, Casual E and Holyoaks, predominantly white shows, to writing in Shondaland, shows of increased diversity and now Riches, which is a predominantly black show. How was the transition for you in terms of representation? I feel like you start your career with whatever the opportunities are in front of you. At that point in the UK, there was very little on screen or behind the screen, they're diverse or inclusive hiring. So, but the thing is, I like Naomi, I grew up in London, I was born in London. I enjoyed all my BBC dramas and all those shows. So it was always, I think the importance of drama and literature and art is you get to empathize with all kinds of people. So I wrote those shows, but I'd always wanted to see myself on screen and see the stories from my community reflected on screen. The US, when I came to work here, definitely had more opportunities to write for Black characters, albeit Black American characters. It wasn't a transition, really, because I think writing human beings, you kind of try to approach every character with the same sort of rigor and authenticity and research and trying to be, you know, approaching as a human being, really. So whether that's male or female or whatever. So it wasn't a transition for me, but it was exciting to be able to write stories about in murder, brilliant defense attorneys with questionable ethics. But similarly, it was exciting to write Anna Delby as this competent, brilliant, hard to understand character who nonetheless managed to, without very much background qualifications, cut a path through New York high society. I think you approach all the characters with trying to be as truthful and emotionally truthful as possible. Oh yes, and as an avid Nollywood film watcher, I could not help but notice the very Nollywood-esque theme of family fighting for property and land, and I was wondering if there was an inspiration from Nollywood. I can't say that I'm up to date on all my Nollywood shows. I've watched a few of my mom on, on Netflix, but I think these are perennial human themes and dramas, whether you're in Nollywood or in Bollywood or in feudal Japan. I think these are stories that you see in, you know, in Shakespeare, you see in Greek mythology, family, connection, love, betrayal, quest, the thirst for power. You know, these are really, really sort of human questions that keep coming up in all kinds of work. So I think it's just more, we're all drawing from the same roots and sources. How do you balance writing for the screen to writing in books? I know you're working on your first novel and I saw that you've written short stories. So I'm curious about that. How do I balance? Very badly. I want to do more prose and fiction, but often, you know, when you're in production, that takes precedence because there's a time frame. I'm adapting a short story I wrote into a TV series. So that's been interesting for me because it's one thing to adapt someone else's work, but quite another to adapt something you wrote some years ago. And you're sort of like, who wrote this again? Like, what was I thinking? Or do I, as the writer, set aside the fact that I wrote it and then create something completely new? But it's currently quite uneven balance. I do want to get back to my novel work in progress, but you know, just in practical terms, TV is where all the action seems to be. It's sort of my day job more than anything. And so fiction has to come in three moments once in a while. Yes. And there's obvious areas that you can get into your worlds on the surface and in film and of course with music and, and all the different ways of expressing interior worlds visually. But what are some special areas that you find only in prose or that you can really express best in prose? I think with prose, the key appeal for me is being able 
to be in someone's interior life, you know, being able to really dig into the contradictory ways in which one thinks and the contradiction between what one's thinking in the moment and what one's doing, which you can do on screen as well, but there is a lag, but there's a great sort of opportunity to do that in the moment in fiction. But the other thing I love about fiction, it is one can play with ideas much more and themes much more as opposed to, I feel like sometimes the process of making a film, the process of making a television show where there is so many steps in the development process whereby you have multiple people and it's better it's the collaboration where they're really helping shape your vision. But sometimes it's more difficult when you have people who are the desire for everything to be really clear for a television audience can have an effect of smoothing down the edges, smoothing down the complexity, smoothing down the contradictions so that it's a much more consumable TV piece. I think that there's just much less space for difficult or hard to categorize television work. But in fiction, I think you can have those works where you know, it's not about smoothing out, taking out all the complexity or having everything be really clearly easy to consume. You can have much more complicated ideas and things playing with each other and dancing with the audience, really. And there's much more space, I think, for the audience to interpret. You can leave more space for the audience to interpret as opposed to, well, you've had to film it. You have to be very clearly defined decisions. We have to define what color she's wearing, what bed she's sleeping in, what lampshade. So I like there can be a slightly more amorphous and fixed quality to fiction that I find interested. Oftentimes a reader, I think that they might replace the central characters when they're reading a book with their own or not know. It's funny that sometimes yeah. to speak to novelists and they might not have a real vision of what the characters look like. The, what's most important is the words. I mean, as an audience member, I, uh, sorry, as a reader, I know that if I love the book, I find it really difficult to engage with the cinematic adaptation or the TV adaptation because I've created the whole world in my head. I've come to this book and imposed my own vision on it. And even if it's a great adaptation, you're just watching, you're like, well, that's not how she looked, you know? And the thing about it is because she didn't, you created how she looks for yourself. And then, so I think what I like, I guess, is that conversation you're in. You're in more of a, it's a slightly deeper conversation you're in with a reader because they've brought themselves to the text, you know? And that can be interesting. And sometimes when you see those debates when like, you know, fans are furious about an adaptation and the truth of the matter is the work was good enough that they imposed themselves on it. So nothing was ever going to be quite as good as that thing they imposed. I think that when you're creating something, it's just an interesting and different conversation you're in with your reader or your audience. Yeah, it's interesting. And I look forward to seeing your own story that you're adapting and how you get back to that initial vision or distance yourself with the initial yeah. vision and pretend it was written by a stranger. I am very curious about your parents' reaction to your transition from law to film. I wonder if my mum will listen to this. Hopefully not. It wasn't a conversation because the way I sometimes approach decision making is I start making the steps and then kind of retroactively say, oh, that's what I was doing. So I just sort of pretended that I hadn't got any job offers yet for the law, but was secretly applying to the BBC the whole time. So I, I hedged on the conversation until I had a job at the BBC where I started off in development. And then was just like, well, I've got this job and the law jobs haven't come through yet, but I hadn't really applied for any of them. So I think it's a difficult decision. Is sort of obviously their key concern was just being in a stretch and stable professional environment. And I knew that they would worry more than anything and it would make the transition more difficult. So I just sort of kept my head down and did the transition and told them afterwards once I had a job in television. Well, it's worked for you very well. I'm sure that they're very proud. And so as you think about the future and teachers or life lessons that were important for you, what would you like young people to know, preserve and remember? Oh, that's such a good question. Um, really early on, a producer said something to me, which I thought was just the worst thing ever. And she said something along the lines of, 
you know, you have to understand you won't necessarily peak early. And at that point, that seemed like a horrible thing to say to a wannabe writer. But I think in retrospect, almost about 20 years into my personal career, it is a really good note because, and, and I think it's a note that's even more important now because at that point, it's like, I wanted to have my last show by the time I was this age. You know, you have these markers in your head of when, but writing careers are unpredictable, you know, these aren't sort of linear, you get promoted each year. It's just that the industry is changing. So I think it's important to sort of be really aware when you start on this endeavor. It could be a longer journey than you imagine. And the fact that it's not happening right away does, isn't necessarily indicative of failure. If you keep writing, if you're constantly learning with all the new scripts and just keep doing the work. I think particularly for a generation of whom experience feels like a weird thing because they grew up in a world where Zuckerberg was a billionaire at 20-something. They expect to be, to land on their big idea so much earlier and so that creates a lot of anxiety and fear and sense of failure so early on when actually just living your life keep writing keep doing the work it might take longer you know but this idea that you're obsolete by 30 if you haven't hit the thing I think it's just really just a terrible trauma and burden to carry on oneself so it might take a minute but it can still happen it can always happen I think you have the really good advice and the expectation that experience counts for nothing it's just difficult with every new script over the years. If you keep working, you're going to be better and stronger as a writer. That would be my big thing is just give it time or it might take longer. And sometimes the time is annoying, but it doesn't have to be wasted time. And then I think in terms of teachers, I think a good one about teachers is just often people don't, because I feel like there's, writing, there's much talk about mentorship, seeking out mentors and stuff like that. But I think you can also learn from all your peers and you don't necessarily have to have a formalized arrangement. A lot of the people who, mentored me don't know they mentored me because I was mainly stalking them online and reading everything they said and reading their tweets and thinking oh god that person did that I wonder why and then just kept watching their moves so I think that it's important to know that you can be learning the whole time your teachers can be not necessarily connected to you but if there's a career you admire just watch it that we have more opportunity than ever before to see what people are doing I'm I'd caution against thinking you can only learn from people just like you because that's something I've seen a lot I think it's incredible to be able to have black women who I've learned from, who, who have been mentors for me. But equally, some of my best ideas have been learned from some of my white male peers. I think you can learn from anywhere. And that thinking expansively about where your learning comes from, whom you can be inspired by, I think it's super important. Those are some of the things that I think about. Well, I think that that is so important. We have to be open. We can learn from anyone and one's mistakes as well. And th th those are important. Yeah. So I think that the luxury of time, we're racing to something, but sometimes the best works of art need to settle. And a life is a work of art. I absolutely agree. And I think what you've said about failure, I think failure is a really good one to talk about failure reje rejection, because it's such a huge part of that. And I think one piece of advice, and I can't remember who said it, unfortunately, in terms of being a writer, you're going to have to find a different way to contextualize what success means because so often we're sending out work waiting for people you're trying to make a show but it might never happen or you could work for something four years and then it ultimately never happens so you can't be waiting for success to mean it's on screen right now because that can take years so sometimes success just has to be I sat down for four hours today and I wrote my pages you know you have to give yourself those markers of I've done what I set out to otherwise you're delaying a sense of accomplishment to this sort of notional future and you don't know when that's going to come and that can be really depressing. So I think putting in one day in markers of achievement in your day, in your week, in your month, in your writing life, because everyone's writing life is different. It's not like the law where you're like, I passed the bar, we all passed the bar or, you know, I became an associate or I made platinum. You don't have the same benchmark. Someone you started off with could win an Oscar tomorrow and it might take you another 20 years to like, you know, even get your sense thing 
made. So I think actually writers, emerging writers, find your own markers of success and know that your failures can be crushed in and they can happen in the years when you're having your best time as well. There is a real sort of knife edge to this career, but not missing out on whatever the learning is from the failure is great. I think, yeah, making sure you learn from the thing, you know, they teach you something. They also teach you how to write characters who go through these things. So I think you've certainly shared a whole range of complicated characters and we look forward to your future projects. So thank you, Abby Ajayi, for sharing the silence of the sea, questioning what is fact and what is truth and morally ambiguous stories that need to be told and shining a light on Black lives, family, friendships, love and loyalty and offering defining visions of Black excellence and the way we live now. Thank you for adding your voice to the creative process. Thank you so much, Mia. It's been lovely to talk to you. The Creative Process Podcast is supported by the Jan Michalski Foundation. This interview was conducted by Mia Funk and Naomi Zidon with the participation of collaborating universities and students. Associate interviews producer on this episode was Sam Myers. Digital media coordinators are Jacob A. Preisler and Megan Hagenbarth. Wintertime was composed by Nicholas Anadolis and performed by the Athenian Trio. We hope you've enjoyed listening to this podcast. If you'd like to get involved with our creative community, exhibitions, podcasts, or submit your creative works for review, just drop us a line at team at creativeprocess.info. Thanks for listening.